And we are live and we are back here with Renters Radio. Mm. I am your host, Lauren Pespiza. We're here. <laughs> here with our fearless producer, Herb Morsiglio. Working the boards tonight. And of course, Evan George. Hello, hello. And uh, we have a big show tonight. This is a incredibly huge, important month for housing. So of course, we bring in the big guns. We have special guest state rep Mike Connolly on the line to talk about what he is doing to stop evictions in Massachusetts. Mike and yeah, hello. Yeah, hello, Lauren. Hey, thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to call you friend of the show, even though you haven't been on yet, but <laughs> friend to renters. Absolutely, yeah. I'm a uh, lifelong renter and a first-time caller. That's right. I know. It's about time. We had to cancel a few things due to covid back in the day so i'm happy to have you on today and uh we wanted to especially during this month when we're about to have the eviction moratorium run out on october 17 um everyone's freaking out charlie baker has decided he doesn't want to extend it and uh you luckily have been working on a solution in the state house for a while that actually seems to be going forward um, so I wanted to bring you to give a little background to our new listeners about the COVID-19 Housing Stability Act and what exactly that entails. Sure, absolutely. And uh, yeah, thank you for, for having me on the show. Um, and it's great to be here. Um, and hello, Evan. How's it going, man? It's going well, I'm, uh, I, I'm watching it on Facebook Live as well. So I see you got my my photo up there. But to answer your question, Lauren, um, we actually started working on this bill, the COVID-19 Housing Stability Act, uh, believe it or not, in late March. And so to kind of walk you through the timeline, uh, as soon as Governor Baker declared the COVID-19 state of emergency um, after he returned from his vacation, uh, that is, um, we immediately started working on an eviction and foreclosure moratorium. Uh, and so that legislation, uh, Chair Honan and myself filed uh, in mid-March. And then while that legislation was in progress, we immediately, you know, and in working with groups like City Life, Theater Urbana, and all of the members of the Homes for All Coalition, we immediately started thinking, well, what happens when the moratorium ends? And presumably there will be tens of thousands of residents who have fallen behind on payments. And the last thing we would want is a wave of eviction right. um, at any point in time. So uh, as you all know, we got the original moratorium bill passed by both branches of the legislature, uh, signed into law by the governor. You would think that would have been easy, um, but we actually met fierce opposition uh, at every step of the way, right up until the final hour that the governor signed it. Um, you know, leading established real estate lobbyists, et cetera, were calling on him to not sign the bill. Uh, fortunately, you know, that went into effect. It's been called the strongest moratorium in the nation. Yeah. Uh, and that, bring, that brings us up to where we are now, where that moratorium is due to expire on October 17th. Meanwhile, you know, efforts at drafting this bill um, were really intense. They involved, you know, many representatives and organizers of the communities most impacted by both the housing crisis and the pandemic. Um, and that bill cleared the housing committee on a 14 to two vote last week. And so that really, you know, serves it up for, for legislative leaders and for the governor that if they're looking for a comprehensive solution that addresses the concerns of renters and also addresses concerns of homeowners and landlords, you know, we have it. Uh, there are 89 co-sponsors. There's over 200. Uh, organizational sponsors. And, you know, meanwhile, we see the COVID numbers are continuing to trend upward. And so the time for action is now. So that that's sort of my, my overview of where we're at, but happy to, you know, go in depth on any part of this. 
So one of the first things I want to ask is what differentiates this bill from the eviction moratorium that's been in place all summer? Sure, great question. Um, on the one hand, the bill proposes to extend the moratorium for the duration of the governor's declared state of emergency and for one full year after, um, which is important. You know, I don't understand how we could ever be in a state of emergency and yet have evictions that would be coming on top of an ongoing affordable housing emergency and an ongoing homelessness emergency. Right. But moreover, what the bill does is it also uh, really, in, I think in a clever way, looks to cancel rent. And it does that by uh, offering relief to certain landlords, particularly focused on the smaller landlords, but then says to the extent you accept relief, you are obligated to relieve your tenant of any debt. Uh, so it does, and it looks to do that in a couple of different ways. Um, this is a huge bill. It's got you know numerous important sections. That's a key one that that it does. Another thing that this bill does is continue to offer foreclosure protections as well as mortgage deferment benefits. Uh, and this is very important. As you know, a mortgage deferment, you can just take your mortgage payments if you're having trouble making them and tack them on to the very end of a mortgage, often many years or decades out into the future. Um, that is something that is in place under the state's current moratorium law. This proposal would extend that um, in time, and it would also make it available not just to homeowners and small landlords, but we even went so far as to make that available uh, to medium-sized landlords. And, you know, really, that is part of a strategy of saying that um, the way we can actually win is when we offer relief to all who need it. And so, you know, the bill does try um, to ensure that the focus is on people most impacted, but it also looks to offer relief in all directions. Unfortunately, you know, some of these landlord groups, some of these big banks, some of these uh, real estate industry, you know, trade groups, um, they've been trashing the bill and they've been misrepresenting really what we're attempting to do. Um, and so, you know, I wish, for example, that some of these landlord groups would actually let their members know Oh, you know, if, if you're having trouble making a mortgage payment, you can, you're entitled to mortgage deferment. Um, you know, if you're having trouble with a maintenance cost, um, the current moratorium gives landlords the ability to draw on last month's rent, um, as a way to, uh, take care of any, uh, you know, maintenance needs that might come up. You think about it, you've already paid your last month's rent, so it's really no skin off the back of the tenant. Um, so we have come up with creative ways to try to make this balanced. But it has been a little unfortunate that we are working to advance this in the face of a lot of misinformation. Yeah, and Mike, I had, um, I have a larger question to get to, but first it's like a term clarification. Uh, because you, you mentioned that uh, this new bill, uh, House 4878, extends it not just to small landlords, but to medium size. Yeah. Can you just define um, what metric you're using for like the small, the medium, and large? I think the number 15 might be the sticking point, but can you go into that? And then how is that assessment made of what is a small landlord versus medium versus large? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, that is what we do in this bill is we offer... Um, you know, mortgage deferment for landlords with up to 15 units. And that number was suggested by some of our state's leading uh, housing attorneys who, you know, do actual advocacy work for, for you know, lower income tenants. So folks from Greater Boston Legal Services and Mass Law Reform Institute. It wasn't necessarily, I think, uh, you know, a scientific number, but it was a number where we felt, um, you know, it made sense 
to call, basically have us use our power to require banks to provide that mortgage deferment benefit. Um, and, and so that's the kind of thing, you know, if certain legislative leaders, you know, have strong opinions on that, I think a lot of these different particular numbers are things that, you know, people who have advanced the bill are open to, um, you know, working with. But I think what we really were going for was a broad concept of how we could address this crisis on different levels in different ways. So certainly if people have feedback or thoughts on that, you know, happy to hear it. And I still have a larger question I want to get to, and I'm always annoying whenever I do this. But uh, you, you just mentioned another thing that, because, you know, in some people's minds, um, a common argument you'll hear from uh, landlords is, at the end of the day, the bank's going to make us pay. Right. And so the questions of, like, the mortgage uh, mortgage deferment, for example. Does the, state right. have, does the state have the power to basically tell banks you are going to do the mortgage deferment? You, you used a phrase, um, and I wasn't able to write it down fast enough. But... I guess just answer that question first. Can the state tell banks you must accept the mortgage deferment, or can banks say no, we're not doing that? Your money is due at the end of the month. Uh, excellent question. So uh, the answer is yes. The state can require that. However, um, it shouldn't. Maybe it won't be terribly surprising to find out that you know some banks uh, will test their ability to bend the rules. And so there have been some reports that we've received that some banks have been giving people a hard time. Uh, and so in response to that, um, I engaged with the Attorney General's office uh, here in Massachusetts, and we've been advised by Maura Healy's office that anyone who is be being given a hard time trying to um, implement the mortgage deferment that is under the current eviction law or that is being proposed to be continued and expanded in our, in our new law, the Housing Stability Act, um, they should file a, a consumer protection complaint with the Attorney General's office and they have indicated to us that they will work aggressively, uh, to make sure banks are honoring the law. But, you know, it probably isn't surprising that when you pass something like that, there will be some banks that are going to try to see what they can get away with. And and now finally we can get to my question because well you know what, what after we are, three questions exactly that you just... <laughs> uh, what we are trying to do and by uh, we I mean just people who are trying to keep families in their homes is we are trying to make sure that both renters and small landlords are taken care of and so you have all those protections you just listed. Uh, small landlords can do the mortgage, uh, mortgage de deferment. They have the, uh, the tax credit program for rent cancellation. They can use the housing stability fund to help pay for repairs, all of this stuff. And yet at the end of the day, we are being lobbied heavily by small landlords saying, we do not want this, we do not want this, we do not want oh, this. Oh, yeah. So, like, so my question to you is, one, why is there such animosity towards something which is going to benefit them? And two, if they're always going to act like this, just to put it simply, then why are we bending over backwards time and time again to try to make sure they have all these avenues if they're just going to try to sink the bill? You can take that in any direction you want, Mike. Sure, yeah. Um, well, you know, certainly, you know, there's, yeah, there's a few different little uh, angles to, to respond to that with. Um, you know, uh, certainly on the one hand, groups like City Life Theater, Urbana, uh, Springfield, No One Leaves, Lynn United, these are some of the core groups that are involved in the Homes for All Coalition. They represent landlords as well, you know, and they do have working class, um, small, truly small landlords, people who saved up, bought a, you know, bought one triple decker, and that's their situation. And so to answer your question, why consider helping landlords? That's part of it is that, you know, um, these grassroots groups are truly um, engaged. Certainly, you know, there, there's an element to the fact that there are landlords out there that do provide um, moderately priced housing. You know, if those sort of good landlords, benevolent landlords do, you know, if they were to go under and then a speculator moves in, you know, we don't really want that. So we do have a, a real public interest in supporting 
uh, landlords. And then moreover, um, in terms of winning the actual issue, I think, you know, my view and I think we've found is that when we are doing our best to provide a comprehensive solution in the, in the final analysis of winning legislative support, winning the argument for public opinion, I think we just do better, you know? Um, and so certainly I think strategically it makes sense for us to be the ones to say, Hey, we care a lot about helping everyone who's impacted and this is our proposal, and then let them be the ones who say, look, what we really need to do is start evictions in the middle of a pandemic. And if, if that's their position, they can own it. Um, but I think it is, you know, a continuing challenge um, where you kind of get the sense that, you know, some of these leaders who are, have emerged to oppose our efforts are just trying to resist any progress so that we don't start making progress and then start, what do you know, wake up one day and decide we don't want housing to be a commodity. We want it to be a human right. So I think that, you know, sort of like the healthcare industry is going to fight, you know, every little reform to keep us from getting to sort of Medicare for all. I think we've seen some very disappointing um, objections to the moratorium. <laughs> Uh, to keep us from from making longer term progress. It's funny, as you're saying, you know, the disappointing objections, I'm getting blown up with, uh, I don't know if these are landlords or trolls or whatever. And the some some of the kinds of questions being asked are uh, some of them are downright abhorrent. Um, and you've been dealing with this for your entire tenure as a state rep. Um, are are these people like affecting where this bill is going? I mean, I could just honestly like I'm getting blown up right now and I'm kind of laughing. Like, you know, uh, how is the how is the bill will be helping landlords who lost rent? Okay, grammar police. Anyway, um can you make it harder for tenants to scam the system and not always trust them to be good and make them provide proofs of lost income as a requirement? Is that part I mean, that's a terrible terrible abhorrent thing during a pandemic to ask, but also like, what is the process for a tenant in this bill to, you know, be pr pr protected from evictions? Like, is there a process? I mean, actually, I'm curious about that as well. Sure, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I hear you in terms of the, you know, the online abuse. Oh, my you know, gosh. I was, uh, I was actually subject to some death threats back in May. Yeah. Um, so... It's amazing the kind of uh, hate that can be stirred up when you want to prevent eviction in a pandemic. But here we are. <laughs> right. It's um, like, do you guys like humans or not? I don't know. It's very strange. I get the same thing. Uh, actually, the, you know, I'm trying to pull from these questions something reasonable to ask. And so I was wondering what would the process be for a tenant to be provided protection? Sure. So, yeah, that. Yeah, let me let me touch on that just a little bit. So, you know, the current eviction moratorium law, again, signed by the governor in April, it's in place through October 17th. And just as an aside, the governor could choose to further extend the current law. Um, as you indicated earlier, he has indicated that he's not going to do that. But to be clear, he hasn't completely shut the door to that idea. Mm -hmm. um, but at present, the law prohibits basically any step in the eviction process for what is deemed a non-essential eviction. And what non-essential eviction means is essentially, you know, there isn't some sort of outrageous criminal enterprise, etc., going on in, in the apartment, but the tenants are using the apartment um, in good faith. And therefore, they shouldn't be subject to any eviction. That's where the current law is at. Right. Um, and then there's two other pieces. Our our proposal was actually um, quite sort of sophisticated and nuanced, I would say, in terms of what we proposed in the COVID-19 Housing Stability Act was not, and this was sort of misreported. I think some some of the headlines kind of jumped at a shorthand summary of the proposal. The leading proposal that we had in our bill was not a sort of blanket continuation of the eviction moratorium. Right. What we proposed was to the extent 
any tenant has been impacted by COVID-19 from the time the crisis started until a year after the declared emergency ends, any inability to pay rent by a tenant in that period cannot be used against the tenant in an eviction action, um, which, uh, you know, came from really a desire to cancel rent outright. And the challenge with canceling rent is that we have a United States uh, federal constitution contract clause, um, which, you know, makes it difficult uh, for states to reform contractual duties. Not necessarily impossible, but makes it quite challenging. And so what we came up with working with our grassroots partners, working with our legal service folks, was the idea that eviction itself is much more a state law access to property type issue. It's not necessarily a contractual issue. It's an issue about who has the authority, who has the privilege, who has the right to uh, inhabit a space at a given point in time. Those kinds of rights are much more uh, clearly part of state law. And so what we decided was to say, okay, if there's a tenant who's been unable to make a rental payment at any point during this emergency or even for one year after, we're just going to say that the courts in our state will not recognize that debt as the basis of an eviction. And moreover, what we've proposed is that even when the emergency ends, you you know, a landlord wouldn't be able to go backwards and say, I didn't get paid a year ago and now I'm evicting you. That would be, you know, permanently right. sort of uh, set aside debt. When the bill came out of committee, um, the housing committee uh, edited that part of the bill and what they went to was actually stronger than what we originally proposed. And what they said was, just take the current eviction moratorium and have it last for the duration of the emergency and for one full year after. Um, either either of those approaches, I think, would be fine. I think what the Housing Committee did is actually stronger. At the same time, you know, if we had to negotiate and reach a deal where we said we're going to have, you know, protections for people who have been impacted, you know, I think that's something that I could support provided that we ensure that the definition of impact is both very broad. It doesn't right. mean you just got the virus. It right. could be your hours were cut. It could be you had to care for a loved one, et cetera. And then also making sure that there aren't any sort of onerous, you know, procedural hurdles for doing that. And so in our, in our proposal, in the original version of the COVID-19 Housing Stability Act, the way we propose that works is the tenant simply um, puts the landlord on notice and says, I've been enduring a COVID-19 impact, therefore I cannot be held, you know, I cannot be evicted on the basis of an inability to pay rent. Right. And the tenant taking that affirmative step would set up a rebuttable presumption, essentially meaning the courts would, you know, by definition, believe the tenant, unless for some reason the landlord could show up with, you know, uh, evidence that sort of proved the tenant was lying, um, which, you know, would be a, a fairly high bar to climb. And, right. you know, again, this was sort of a framework that we developed working with these housing justice organizers, working with the legal services attorneys, thinking about, you know, how do we give ourselves the best chance to show the public, to show legislators, we really want to protect everyone who needs it. But, you know, if anyone is out there and we know they are claiming that people are abusing the system, you know, we're not, um, we're not looking for that kind of activity. And so that's pretty much how we've gone about it. You know, I don't know uh, which, if either, is a more likely way to do it, whether it's the, you know, no evictions based on inability to pay for COVID impacted tenants or straight up, let's just extend the current moratorium for the rest of the emergency plus one year.
And uh, Mike, I got to say, I like having a democratic socialist use states' rights. There. Yeah, uh, it's like a loop around around uh, federal contracts. That was uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I do have questions about that federal contract contract law as well. Um, but I'm sure. also, yeah, I'm also getting blown up by people about funding. How are we going to pay the landlord? Um, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> excellent question. So the proposal that we made with the COVID-19 Housing Stability Act proposes a housing stability fund. And we certainly, and, and, and very intentionally, as I mentioned, we started drafting the bill in, in March. It was a very sort of diligent, intense, day in, day out, week in, week out process of drafting that bill over three months. Um, and we've been advocating for it now for about another three months. We didn't feel it made any sense or that it would have been wise at that stage to propose a specific funding mechanism or a specific funding level for a variety of reasons. You know, one, um, there are a variety of potential funding levels. We felt like in the month of June or the month of July, if we said, you know, let's have a real estate transfer tax and that's how we'll do it. Or, you know, let's have a small tax on corporations and that's how we'll do it. The fear was then the debate would focus entirely on that one particular funding mechanism mm -hmm. and really distract from that broader across the board relief for all concept. That's been one challenge. Another challenge has been just where we stand with the federal government. I mean, shamefully, you know, our federal government has not, um, stepped up with additional rounds of, of relief. Right. It's kind of astounding to me that they're in an election year and, you know, they literally could hand out some money just before the election. Right. Um, and they haven't chosen to do that. Um, so to answer your question, you know, now the bill has cleared the housing committee. The next logical place it would go would be the Ways and Means Committee, and that's where we anticipate it will be referred to. It is naturally, you know, within the domain of Ways and Means to sort of make those calculations, and the bill moving to them now um, sort of gives them the time to do that. The final piece I'll add is another big thing that the Housing Committee did um, under the leadership of Chair Honan um, and the support of Chair Crichton and Lynn. Um, you know, another big thing they did was they added in uh, tax credits for landlords. And the way those tax credits work is a landlord who hasn't been, you know, paid the money that they had under their rental contract could apply to the state for the tax credit, you know, document the situation. And then if they're awarded the tax credit to accept it, they have to relieve the tenant of their debt. And of course, that perfectly sidesteps the any concerns over the contracts clause of the federal constitution. Um, you know, there would be sort of a bargain uh, with consideration, you know, to the landlord, et cetera. And so um, that there is another mechanism that doesn't involve sort of directly uh, raising a new particular revenue or setting up in advance sort of a, a pot of money, but it creates this tax credit option. And so, you know, and, and, I sh and, and to be clear, you know, uh, before you start thinking, you know, uh, I'm too soft on landlords, um, <laughs> you know, all, all of these proposals are designed so that it, on the administrative level, we could prioritize the relief. Some giant corporate landlord that has a portfolio of a billion dollars or more, you know, I, I'm not too concerned about the relief we're sending them. On the other hand, you know, the uh, person who owns one triple decker and that's kind of their family's retirement and they're offering, you know, below market rents in a community that's experiencing gentrification. Sure, I think we as a state can make an effort to help defray and support, you know, the cost that that landlord is facing. And uh, you went into it a little bit, and I, um, I want to circle back to the federal response because I have a lingering question. But you started to mention where the bill is currently at. So we got out of the, um, the House committee, 14 to 2, 
it was my understanding that it's right now in like the rules committee to basically ways and means. So I uh, uh, go to ways and means next, or or I guess uh, yeah, the export. Where is the bill currently, and when do you see, if at all, a vote occurring on the House floor? Great question. So uh, at present, uh, the bill is in a place called the Committee on Rules of the Two Branches, oh, acting concurrently. Um, that is typically thought of as sort of a transitory kind of, you know, uh, transitory place. And the general understanding is from there, it would go to Ways and Means. And um, my understanding is that hasn't happened yet, although usually that takes a few days okay. um, from it to go from one place to the next. And really, I think the second part of your question is probably more important than the particular committee status. You know, really, this boils down to right now, you know, the leadership of the House and Senate, along with Governor Baker, who, you know, exerts um, some real influence over the process as well. It really comes down to those those top legislative leaders and the governor deciding, do we want to do something or not? And, you know, I can talk at length. I think the answer to the question is we're morally and practically and, you know, in every way conceivable, we're obligated to do something immediately to protect our most vulnerable residents in a pandemic. But really, I think that's where it comes down to. Having said that, you know, what also influences that analysis, I think, is what every legislator is hearing from their districts. You know, the top leadership of the legislature would be more inclined uh, to take action on this if, you know, they're hearing from individual members that we're hearing from our constituents. And so... You know, sometimes people will ask me, you know, is it better to talk to this person or that person? I always say, like, I don't think there's one silver bullet or one magic formula. What we really need, um, and part of why I wanted to join you, besides just, you know, wanting to catch up with Renters Radio and loving, <laughs> yeah. loving what you're all about. Um, I really wanted to be here tonight because, you know, we're in this moment now where it's October 5th. The moratorium expires now on October 17th. And so we have to make as much noise and raise as much awareness and do as much outreach as we can in these next, particularly this week, you know, headed into next week as we possibly can. And hopefully um, you've heard there's a week of action yeah. being planned uh, by the Homes for All Coalition with more events being announced every day. Oh, yeah. And we'll be plugging them all. But really, I'm getting a lot of this as well. I've been thinking, it. Is there anyone we have to call? I know you beat around. I know you dance around that question. But is there, hey, you live in, you know, Ayer, call this rep that they're on this committee. Like, because I got listeners all over the state. Who do we have to call? I would, no, I mean, I would encourage anyone who's concerned to start with contacting their rep and their senator. Um you know, if you want to go the extra mile, you can look up and find out, you know, is my rep a supporter? But even if your rep has co-sponsored it, you got to remember they are being um, overwhelmed with piles of misinformation, piles of, you know, anti-tenant rhetoric coming from SPOA and some of these other oh, groups. Man, they're going to burn their And house. so even if, yeah, so even if your rep or senator is a co-sponsor, now would be a great time to reach back out and let them know how important this is and how um, we can't allow this moratorium to expire. Uh, you know, it, it's almost reminiscent of the police reform debate where, you know, on certain issues, you know, we as the progressive activists, I think we have um, a lot of grassroots power and sometimes we take on you know, those big, bad corporate interests, and they kind of have the lobbying power, and that's the fight. When it comes to, like, the police reform debate, the defund the police debate, or this landlord-tenant debate, we're taking on interests where they're inherently organized. There's a police union in every city or town. So when we want what we want, 
they literally have built-in organization everywhere. Likewise, likewise with landlords, they, um, you know, for the many people working on this, it's advocacy they're doing in their free time. For some of these landlord leaders, it's a full-time effort to try to resist, you know, what the housing justice movement is trying to advance. And so it's, it's a challenge, and I, that's a long-winded way, forgive me, of, of saying, um, I don't think anyone should be taken for granted. I think everyone you can let know, everyone you can communicate with, let them know that this is important. They need to hear from people because I can promise you they're hearing from, from many landlords around the clock. And Mike, you actually, you just led us to what I was anticipating being some of like the closing uh, thoughts that I wanted to have for you, but this is how the conversation went. So I got to go there. Um, like you brought up the house, uh, the police reform bill. Oh, yeah. And I think a week or two ago, there was an article published in the Herald saying that uh, they are getting calls at a five to one ratio, five being people who want to kill any sort of reform to one that actually wants some sort of police reform. And I have to imagine uh, a similar ratio is happening uh, with this bill that landlords are out organizing, out calling renters at probably a three to one, four to one, five to one uh, margin. So a little bit more of a holistic question for you, and uh, you started to get to it, but in terms of like the state of the left here in Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, greater in Massachusetts, where do you see us at and what and why slash how are we losing these organizing fights where we are being out organized by our opponents? Sure. Yeah. Uh, wonderful question. Um, I'm watching you on Facebook here, so there's a little bit of a delay, and it's disconcerting because I see you talking with your hands. Oh, yeah. I, see um, I took off while my I'm jacket talking. as he said that, too. I'm just like, how do we organize the left? Here, hold my beer. Yeah. Let's go. Um, no, great great question. I mean, I think what we need, what we can do and what we ought to do, and I, I always come back to this word, is partnership. You know, and, and frankly, um, if I can humble brag a little bit, you know, you have uh, a leftist in the legislature right now, uh, in myself, we have some incredible uh, left wing, you know, progressive champions in the legislature who have joined in the past session, you know, people like Nika Allegado, people like Lindsay Sabadoza, uh, Tammy Govea, Maria Robinson, the, the list really goes on and on. Um, new people like Erica Idahoven have been elected who are only going to add to that. And so the only, you know, what I would say is the legislature today isn't the legislature of five years ago. You know, I saw people like Barack Obama sell out the left 10, 15 years ago, and it was witnessing that that made me want to go in and do this kind of thing. So on day one, you know, I'm walking in saying, how do we get a supermajority of Democrats to agree to do the things that 70 to 80% of people all say are the obvious things we should do, like asking wealthy individuals to pay their fair share in taxes, funding, you know, upgrades to the MBTA, keeping people from being evicted, um, and holding uh, law enforcement accountable. And, um, I think we've made a great deal of progress, and it's certainly a long conversation. On the other hand, these are two interesting issues, again, where we are not, you know, this is not a walk in the park. When it comes to police reform, you know, every uh, police department in every community is inherently an organizing force. And in every neighborhood, you know, uh, where every cop lives, they probably know a hundred people in their neighborhood that, you know, they talk to on their way out the door in the morning. And so, you know, there is real sort of organized, not just powerful opposition, there's real organized opposition to police reform. There's real organized opposition to tenants' rights and to housing justice. Um, and I don't have an easy answer other than to say we have to really work in partnership. If we're going to be successful, then we have to build coalitions um, that really, I think, draw on, you know, those leftist legislators that we do have who are in there holding power accountable, speaking truth to power, working in partnership, 
to bring these proposals to the forefront. Um, but it, but it isn't easy, particularly on these issues where, um, you're right. Uh, we can hear at least as much from the opposition as we do for, for our side, probably even more. And th that leads me to uh, what actually I'm going to say for the end. Um, I, I still have one more thing on uh, the current housing situation. I definitely want your thoughts on COVID. Am I still with you? Oh, uh, Mike, can you hear us? Uh-oh. Oh, no. Mike, can you hear us? <laughs> Mike, your, your, your ear pods. Mike, can you hear us? Oh, it's definitely his AirPods. I'm blaming them. That's why you stick with the cords. Yeah, I know. I can. I heard him. Oh. Hello. Can you hear us, Mike? Can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear you. I'm guessing it's it's. Wait, but we we wouldn't be able to hear his voice, right? No, because he's, he he's there's no mic on the AirPods, is there? That's a good. Oh point. my God! Plug in your. I'm I'm texting him. Plug in your AirPods. All right, while we wait. Your earpods? I know he's still on. I, to, to help the people who are watching, who are not watching the Patriots score. Oh, yes, let's get to that. Um, the, the Chiefs are winning 6-0, which means we've held them to field goals. Oh. Mike, can you hear us? Mike? On the phone. I know you are. <laughs> this is how the sausage gets made. Yep, this exactly. This is the ugly truth behind the glory that is Renters Radio. Uh try calling back. You know? I wanna... Okay. Well, I feel like he heard me. There we go. Yeah, Alright, it's calling. Hello. Mike, can you hear us? You back? Hello? Hello. Hey. Hey, Hi. Mike. You there? Yeah. Where, where, where did I lose you? I was just talking and talking and talking. and then We heard everything. I, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, I was yeah. just about to, because um, I, I definitely still want your thoughts on COVID. Uh, there's one more housing thing that I want you to help clarify for people. And that is at okay. the federal level, uh, the CDC announced maybe roughly a month ago about using um, yeah. eviction protections. And... I missed a call this weekend with City Life that was going to go into it. So would you mind just explaining, does that federal protection help us at all keep people in their homes? Oh, absolutely. Perfect question. And yeah, thank you for bringing this up um, because this has become, I think, a key part of this entire, you know, stew of advocacy that we're, that we're working through right now. Um, as you indicated, in early September, the Centers for Disease Control issued an order uh, saying that COVID-impacted tenants uh, should not be uh, subject, cannot be subject to eviction through the end of the calendar year for 2020. Interestingly, you know, we had been working on this Housing Stability Act where, as I explained in our original draft, we had protections against eviction for inability to pay for COVID-impacted tenants. It was interesting to see the CDC sort of struck on that same formula of, you know, someone who's had an impact, whether it's direct or indirect, shouldn't be evicted. Um, so the bottom line is the CDC order is, I would say, like a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, there's a great deal of uncertainty as to whether or not an order from the CDC will be enforceable and will be recognized by our state courts. Um, you know, it's just not something that, uh, to my knowledge, has happened before. And, you know, no doubt that will be challenged by landlords. And at present, there are currently three lawsuits, uh, at least three lawsuits, challenging the enforceability of the CDC order in other parts of the country. Uh, to be clear, the CDC order explicitly says if a state has stronger protections, which we currently do, then the state law controls and the CDC order doesn't apply. So at present, no one has had to invoke and no one has tested the CDC order in Massachusetts. If the governor allows the moratorium to expire and if the legislature fails to take action prior to October 17th, 
then uh, in theory, the CDC order would provide a backup layer of protection for impacted tenants. But again, um, primarily there's a concern as to whether or not that will be recognized by the courts. And even if we can establish that the courts will recognize it, fundamentally, you know, that is going to put the most vulnerable of tenants at a disadvantage. You know, there are steps that have to be taken. Right. Uh, you know, you have to invoke different things. You have to get before a judge successfully. In theory, these hearings will be happening over Zoom. You know, a lot of people don't have internet. People don't speak English. And right. so, you know, there's a plenty of ways people can and will fall through the cracks of that order. And that's the best case scenario if it's even recognized as enforceable. However, the thing that I think is most striking about the CDC order and the thing that as I'm advocating to House leaders, as I'm advocating um, to the governor, what I'm pointing out is, you know, it's not clear how enforceable the CDC order is in a court of law. What is clear is that the CDC is our nation's, you know, preeminent authority on public health and on the prevention of infectious disease. And so as a matter of policy, our nation's leading public health infectious disease institution has declared that any evictions of COVID-impacted tenants um, are going to make fighting COVID and make our task of saving lives uh, more difficult. And so how I'm looking at this is saying to state leaders, you know, we can take that public health message from the CDC order. But now we have to proactively act on that message by passing the Housing Stability Act. Um, and the bottom line is, if we don't do that, what we're essentially doing is we're saying to our most vulnerable residents, don't worry, we're walking away and we're going to entrust you to the care of Donald Trump's Centers <laughs> for Disease Control, something I would never do. And so, you know, we have to be very thoughtful about this because I can tell you it was in the Boston Herald this weekend. If you probably saw it, the greater Boston real estate board is now very aggressively approaching legislators saying, don't worry about anything. Just right. leave it up to the CDC. That's not good enough. If you believe in the CDC's public health credibility, then you have to support us taking action on the state level. Yeah, I actually I had a quote uh, listed by the CEO of that organization, oh, Greg. Uh, Greg Vassell. Oh, Greg. Um, deferring payments isn't going to be enough because those payments are going to come due someday. And but uh, I mean, you already adequately addressed that. Them kind of using that fear on small landlords, right. saying, "Nope, the banks are going to come for you, so you got to get this money now." When in reality, as you expressed before, we have about three or four different measures to protect landlords, and on top of that, we can make sure that the uh, the banks honor a mortgage deferment. So it is just fear mongering. It is just lying, which I would say. Oh, yeah. Part. That's par for the course yeah. for them. <laughs> you know, interestingly, just as an aside, I'll share with you, you know, there have been many foreign emails that have come into the legislature from some of these landlord groups. And over the course of the summer, one of the uh, landlord, one of the emails that they were sending, you know, it had like a long list of arguments against our bill, and like I forget the exact order of the, the points, but one of the points, let's call it, you know, argument number three, was, you know, you really don't want to continue protecting tenants because the truth is, you know, having an unpaid rental debt on your record will be absolutely devastating. And so it's really in the tenant's own interest that we evict them to prevent them from all of the harms and all of the burdens that will come. And by the way, our oh legislation gosh. actually actually seeks to address them. Then they say in point number four, that's point number three, then they get to the next point and they say, actually, there's tons of tenants out there who are just gaming the system. They have right. the money to pay the rent, but they're just sitting at home, choosing, they're working from home around the clock on Zoom, making good money, and just deciding they don't feel like paying rent, and they're never going to pay. And I'm like, wait a minute, you just told me a minute ago <laughs> that actually not paying rent is the worst thing anyone could ever do, and, it, and we got to 
evict people for their own good. So if that's true, why would any rational person decide not to pay rent? You know, and, and it almost reminds me of, you know, back in the 80s when, yeah. you know, people like Ronald Reagan would set up these tropes and these caricatures of, you know, people who were on public assistance. It's sort of the same thing, I think, with the landlords where they ascribe, uh, you know, malicious intent and, and, and they're talking about people gaming the system. I mean, I don't know. Have you all have you all ever actually seen any documented case of someone gaming the system? No. And, and um, actually, one of the things is that when you get evicted, that is actually pretty bad. There's a terrible system for keeping record of that as well. It's not even not paying rent, but getting an eviction on your record can affect your your child as well. Our our, our record right. keeping system for that is like a it's like this permanent record that you hear about in high school. We had a whole conversation with Jordan uh, on the show about that. And um, uh, sure. we just brought it up, you know, so that, for them to be like, oh, not paying your rent's bad on your record, but actually it, getting evicted is pretty bad, too. And uh, the whole system's pretty messed up. And this is exactly like you were saying, the Reagan era welfare, welfare queen bullshit that everybody wanted to blame people who are less fortunate. And I also, know, I, there's I, no like there's there just aren't cases like that. Like I like that for some people, the concept of a low credit score is worse and you don't have one of the most fundamental things of life right. as shelter from the environment. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, my credit score is yeah, terrible. So the, like, yeah, the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs in that is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. But I, I have to get, uh, get your comments on COVID because, uh, one, it seems like Massachusetts, along with other states, we are going in the wrong direction. We have the second highest reproduction rate of the virus, which I don't really understand how that's possible, but I'm going to take uh, the facts as they are. Uh, we have definitely been in an upswing in terms of positive tests that come back, at least for the last two to three weeks. And um, oh, yeah. Tori Bedford, also a friend of the show, um, yes. she, she had um, a, a great post in her talks with an epidemiologist, and I'm pretty sure you commented on it, but just to read it, uh, this is her now quoting the epidemiologist. Our goal was not to eliminate the virus. Our goal is to maintain the capacity to manage the virus. Elimination would require methods like aggressive, prolonged lockdowns, which is just not feasible in a country like ours. So I, I want you to weigh yeah. in, I want you to weigh in on, on those two things. One, what is, even though I think you and I have the same lens, I want you to say for the audience, what does she mean that it's not feasible in a country like ours that we are just trying to manage the virus? And then your second point, how do you feel uh, the state is responding by opening things up while for the last two to three weeks we're heading in the wrong direction? Take those two points as you want. Yeah, I actually, um, thank you. And I saw Tori's tweet uh, this morning, and I actually retweeted it with a comment. And I'm, I'm actually pulling it up right here on my computer. Um, I retweeted your retweet of the retweet. There's nothing like a good well, podcast. I'm going go like, to go like your retweet. Oh, um, <laughs> my God. Tweetception. <laughs> yeah, so... So here was my response, and I really appreciated uh, Tori's reporting because I think it really did uh, get at sort of some of the, the so-called strategy that's involved here. But, um, you know, my response is, you know, Governor Baker's reopening plan aims to strike a balance between COVID continuing to kill poor people, people of color, our most vulnerable communities, and us maintaining a system of racial capitalism and enormous levels of wealth inequality that come with it. And, you know, underlying our state strategy is the assumption that it wouldn't be possible for us to have a robust public health infrastructure or a strong social safety net. And the reason why, you know, and I think the epidemiologist is sort of getting at that when it was remarked in a country like ours, because, you know, what it would take for us to actually eliminate the virus or come close to controlling the virus, it would take making public investments in our public health infrastructure and in all of the supports that would be needed that would enable people to stay home, that would enable them to not be evicted, that would allow them, um, if they're in a vulnerable category in particular, uh, to not have to be on the front lines uh, working for low wages and, and poor benefits. Um, but the real roadblock, and I've been mocked by, 
you know, some people on the right wing for doing this. Because what I've done is I've linked the issues of COVID with taxation. And to me, I see it as very clear. A big part of this strategy is we have to tax the rich. We have to tax big corporations. We have to tax wealthy individuals. And we have to say, you all are going to have to pay your fair share so that we can make the investments we need that will let people support themselves and avoid putting themselves in risky situations. Um, but clearly, you know, in Charlie Baker's Massachusetts, that kind of approach is not something that is supported. And so given that, what you see are these really, I think, increasingly concerning efforts to try to manage a virus that is really hard to manage, that's incredibly contagious and quite, you know, deadly. Yeah, the, one of the best quotes I, I, I kind of... I have seen during this period, uh, this was like, I don't know, maybe in May, uh, when some of the lockdowns started to happen and you started to see the counter protests, especially like in the Midwest against the lockdowns, saying open up, open up. And um, like one person at that rally, I think had the clearest comment, which was, if you were not going to take care of people, then you have to let us go back to work. And I, I just loved that, that understanding of our country is not going to have a robust public health system. We are not going to give people more of a stipend or a monthly payment to stay home. We don't have to work. And since we're all right. taking that basic assumption that we will not do this, well, then you're really just putting people in the situation of they have to go work just right. so they can make, uh, make their bills. And that is a policy decision on the part of our country and not necessarily like natural law, so to speak. But Oh, absolutely. You know, we've had 20 years of austerity in Massachusetts. Yeah. So if we were operating in an environment where we had, you know, um, you know, a real sort of equitable tax code and, you know, we had always been doing the best we could to make good investments and to have an inclusive society, you know, that'd be one thing. But there's a real easy answer right now. You know, just since this pandemic started, the billionaires and the biggest corporations have gotten more wealthy. So, I mean... Give us that money back, you know? I mean, it, you, it's not yours, you know? We need it uh, to maintain um, a society. And, and, you know, we should also remember we're operating basically in an experiment. You know, we all think we know how this is going to go, but, you know, we it still hasn't been proven, you know, exactly what time frame, you know, the uh, the vaccines will come online. There are terribly concerning statistics where, a huge chunk of the country says they won't even get the vaccine. Um, and so we can't afford to assume anything about this virus. What we need to do is, you know, tax the rich and use the, that additional revenue to make the investments we need to help keep people safe. And it's been, I think, a real tragedy that, you know, what we've seen from our governor is bullying, you know, school districts into returning to in-person operations. The MBTA today has said there will be massive cuts of public transit service. Um, and the list goes on and on. You know, the governor's plan to return to evictions in just a week and a half. Yeah. So, so I want to yeah. circle back to week of action plugs. What do we got? What's on the agenda? I know. I've yeah. Got... Um, yeah. What do you have? Let's go. We'll, we'll uh, share it on our page. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, um, you know, I would encourage everyone to just connect with the uh, homes for all coalition. You know, they have one page uh, called housing guarantee. Um, dot org. There's another page called, Homes for all mass dot netlify dot app. Um, I'll, I'll throw that into the Facebook comments yeah, right now. In the chat because oh. I don't even know whether the four spelled out or not. Here it is. Come on. Here comes do this wrong. Um, and, and while you're listing that, fortunately, someone is texting me now. Uh, one of the housing groups that I organize with Dorchester and Office awesome. Sale. What are you guys uh, up to? We're creating our own week of action. So I guess for yes. my plug, one. If you live in Dorchester and you'd like to get involved in this week, please DM me. Uh, but the second is uh, this Sunday, there's going to be a rally at the Commons uh, led by City Life. 
of either Nirvana from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. this Sunday. So if uh, for my plug, stealing the, the big headliner, if you can do nothing else this week, it is to contact your local state rep. We don't care if they've already co-signed. That doesn't actually mean anything. Co-sign. Uh, also call your state senator and make uh, plans to be on the Boston Common this Sunday from 2 to 4. All right. Well, I'll certainly be there. We have another couple of events to plug on the agenda, but it's mostly counter-protesting police. <laughs> Police, uh, Blue Lives Matter people, and also Nazis. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, different Back the Blue rallies coming out every day. Actually, sometimes they – we have literally been at these rallies, Mike, and the landlords show up too. It's very confusing. Yeah. It was so good in front that of the state house. Yeah, it was, like, it was like, what? And then, they, you know what? You couldn't even tell them apart. They just all meshed together, picking out the indigenous people who are having a protest to begin with. Uh, it was really right. – uh, it was awful. Also, um, I want to say we do need to get a bell for the studio for every time a guest says tax the rich. Just throwing it out there. I, I enjoyed when you said that. I really appreciate you being on today. I've, this bill needs to pass. Um, if we had more time, I would get into what to do if it doesn't. Of like, <laughs> like, all right, which bill are we taking over now? If, you know, but, um, well, yeah, just on that, on that point super quick, you know, the Homes for All Coalition in particular, they are, you know, preparing for eviction blockades awesome. if necessary. All right. Well, um, I will bring them so, to Yeah. Actually, Mike, right before you leave us, because you made a comment, which um, I don't know, I filed away, which is, do you think in, in anticipation of some sh- sort of public uh, blockages, um, occupation of space, they'll just do eviction hearings via Zoom? Can they do that? Yeah, I mean, um, my understanding is that has been the conversation um, at the judicial branch. Um, Chief Justice Ralph Gantz, who, you know, sadly uh, passed away way too soon, he had been convening a a working group um, where, on the one hand, he, he actually was, I think, very sincerely trying to protect tenants. And on the other hand, there was conversation around returning to Zoom-based or having Zoom-based eviction proceedings. Um, I think it's it's a real blow that we lost him because I know he was really advocating to protect tenants. And now that he um, is no longer able to participate, my understanding is the conversation has really shifted in a strong way toward, let's just have these Zoom hearings. Um, so. You know, it sounds like what the movement is moving toward is thinking not necessarily the traditional blockade of the courthouse, but rather setting up blockades at people's homes when and if they're trying to evict them. All right, there we go. Absolutely. Well, you know, bring the sousaphone. We'll make it into a party. And uh, Mike, you'll, you'll have to come back on sometime so yeah. we can discuss um, elections and how to get more uh, people of the left elected in the mass state house. I don't think we have the time for that today, but really appreciate you coming on. You should come by the station, too. We should talk about, you know, supporting local artists and all that other stuff that used to be at the forefront before the world started ending. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I'm happy to come back. We would love to have you sure. down here. It's all the same crew from or from EMF, basically, and uh, everybody was excited that we were having you on today. Um, so we have the plugs out of the way. Plug what you're doing after this. This is why we have to leave. What are you doing, Evan? Um, I'm going on a different podcast oh. to um, drink some milk. We'll, uh, we'll call it that. Uh, just to discuss socialist housing policy with another Boston. You podcast. are on a housing policy podcast role today yep, so i gotta roll out all right well tell them i say hi i look forward to hearing it and, so and great. mike again take care always a pleasure bud yeah thank you for having me see you later say hi to herb oh yeah and, uh... right here. he's saying hi right back <laughs> just doesn't have a camera he's trying to save our cool. democracy on the elections during the elections here um, one more thing I didn't get to. Oh, my God, I just remembered. So Jamie Eldridge, like, dropped, like, a bill today that I, I will actually be having him on the show October 19 to discuss. Um, it looks pretty promising, so you might want to take a look. I don't know if you know about this. Rose thing, he just did a press release. 
Yeah, no, it's a great bill. I think I'm, I think I'm co-sponsoring it. Okay, it, uh... yeah, I was like, I wanted to get to it. Like, I just found out about it a couple hours ago. I was like, oh, it's a good thing I have him scheduled. Yeah, I think him and, and Rep. Nico Algardo are filing yeah, it. And, it, and my understanding is, I don't have it in front of me, oh, it I would see, be yeah. a deeds excise tax that could support housing, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, also climate initiatives. Um cool. And it's a great idea, you know. Very cool. Very um, cool. Yeah, I'm glad. I figured you'd hello? be on it. Hey, you can hear me? I figured you'd be on it. Uh, you just helped me plug the next show, so thank you. There you go, a little teaser. <laughs> a little teaser. We got more housing on the way. This is Housing Month. We'll be back. Thank you so much, Mike Connolly. As always, um, keep us posted on any anything else going on. You need us to... Let the people know. Oh, Mike lost us. All right. Well, we're going to sign off anyway. I'm rambling now. Anyway, <laughs> like, subscribe, donate to our Patreon. It's all Renters Radio all the time. Come watch me play video media. games on Twitch. The goal is 100 followers. We're at like 21. So um, let's go, people. <laughs> you got 21 followers. Um, I, I, we could have a whole show on this phenomenon. 